0: On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther took a stand for truth, stand for the gospel that would catapult him to the center of the Reformation and in in a way that would completely change history, change the world. He didn't start out to do that. He didn't start out to reform the church. He didn't start out to... Create a Lutheran church or even a Protestant church. But he knew that God's word had gripped his soul and he could not do otherwise. When confronted with death, all he had to do was recant his teachings. Really, all he had to do was to be silent, stop teaching, stop preaching, hide out in that castle rest of his life and he would have been fine. But he couldn't. He said it is neither right nor safe to go against the conscience when the conscience is bound by the word of God. And Luther was strong and courageous because of that. And he was used by God to propel the reformation. Not the only person, obviously. But God used him to really ignite the kindling of the Reformation. In another spiritually dark era. Several thousand years before. Jeremiah. I, I'm sorry before Luther. Is it Jeremiah the prophet? He was a man who stood against his times. He stood against religious leaders and a kingdom that was dead set against God. God kept sending his prophets to Israel. Jeremiah was one of those that God sent to try to reform a nation. But they wouldn't have it. As God would send his message, Jeremiah would proclaim it and they would ignore it. But they wouldn't just ignore it in some indifferent way. They actually hated God. They were religious, but they hated God. And they took their anger out on Jeremiah. They beat him, they mocked him, they called him a liar. They threw him down in a pit, intending for him to die of starvation down there. They intended to kill him in other ways. God preserved his life. Jerusalem fell. He remained in the land. Nebuchadnezzar was kind to him because he knew Jeremiah was preaching for Israel to surrender because that was God's will. But even after that, even after everything that he said came true, you think the Israelites that were left in the land would listen to him? No. They didn't listen. They cost- continued to call him a liar. And they forced him to go with them to Egypt. For Jeremiah said they would die if they went to Egypt. Jeremiah was strong and courageous. But the nation wouldn't listen. And the rest is sort of history. We live in an era. Sort of like Martin Luther's. Sort of like the Israelites in Jeremiah's day. It's in badly. It's in bad need of reformation. We need the light of God. We don't know whether people will listen. And there will be some transformation of our culture. Or whether. They will be like the Israelites in Jeremiah's time continue to hate God, continue to reject God, and heading, racing towards God's judgment. The results are in God's hands. Our call by God is to be reformers. You are called to be a reformer. Our culture is in need of radical reformation that can only come by the word of God and the power of God working to draw people to Himself and strengthen His people. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. And specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. Admittedly, this is right at the end. It's the conclusion of Corinthians. But we're going to dig right in and draw out the truths that Paul has placed here, the Holy Spirit has placed here to feed our souls in a time That it's in great need of reformation. Paul says, beginning of verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Paul provides five reformational mandates for us that you must embrace to be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ so that you're progressively growing. So that you are growing in Christ likeness. That you are lovingly edifying the saints. And boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Paul wrote First Corinthians to correct a great number of things going on in the church. Corinth was an absolute uh, detestable place to live. I mean it was so bad that they turned the name Corinthian. Corinth or the name, the person Corinthian into uh, into a, a, a word that meant to sin sexually, to Corinthianize. Okay? That's how pervasive sin was. So these commands are given to a church that lives that lived in a detestable culture. But God called them to do that, and he calls us today to do something similar. The church in Corinth was immature. It was arrogant. It was living in immorality. It was living in carnal, carnality. It was it was comfortable with sin. There was sin, open sin going on in the church, such that even among the Gentiles, they were shocked by it, but the church was okay with it. The church was guilty of idolatry, living selfishly, as being divisive, They believe false doctrines. And all that comes to a close in 1 Corinthians 16. And and these five mandates kind of summarize everything Paul's said in a a positive way for, for what they should do. As one commentator put it, the problems that Paul addresses in this letter will be solved as the Corinthian Christians obey these five commands. It'll be reformational, transformational in their own lives and in and in their own culture. These five mandates, the outline's very simple. They flow right there. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. And we'll just follow that outline right in the text. So five imperatives, five commands for a church to live out in reformational times. First, you must be watchful so that you're growing, edifying others, and proclaiming Christ. You must be watchful. First of four, first of five imperatives that, that Paul gives the Corinthian church so that it can be faithful, correcting many of the deficiencies and the weaknesses that Paul confronts in the letter. The instruction to be watchful is a present active verb. It's something called, they're called to do continuously. We are called Continuously to do it. You are called to continuously be watchful. To be watchful regularly and persistently. And there's no occasion where we can just say, time out. Don't have to be watchful. I can let my guard down and live life any way I want to, carelessly. We we are not allowed to slack off. Not allowed to be unattentive. And to be watchful literally means to, to be awake or to be alert. In you know, your Bible translation, some may say watchful, some may say be alert. The word has a reference to being alive as opposed to dead. And, and Paul used this same term in Corinthians in 16 other cases, all to speak of the resurrection of Christ or our own resurrection, God, of, 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 the, of God resurrecting our own bodies. So the, the root of that word is used here in this text to say, be alive, be awake. And we, we kind of get what he's saying. If you, if you think about it, as a, as a team begins to take the field and the coach can say, be alert, be awake, be watchful. We don't know exactly what strategy the other team, the opponent's going to take. Be on alert for their, for their offense, for how they're going to attack. That's what he's saying. Be alive out there. Be alert. Be watchful. What are you to to be alert for as a believer? Paul doesn't specify that here. It's just a a summary. But I, I want us to see that in other passages of Scripture, we are given some indication of what we're supposed to be alert for. First, you must be watchful and alert against the attacks of Satan. You must be watchful and alert against the attacks of Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 commands you to be of sober spirit. Be watchful. And then it tells you why. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, we don't have wild animals, not in this area of the country anyway, roaming around. But if you lived in a small village in Africa, you would understand this verse a whole lot better. Put yourself there. You live in a small village. And lions are a reality. And you hear a lion roaring. Are you just going to carelessly walk out the front door? Are you just going to allow your children to mindlessly go outside and play? There's a 400 pound feline that wants to make you its next meal. Wouldn't that set you on edge? That's what scripture is saying. There's something more powerful than a 400 pound felon. Satan. Now, compared to God, he's nothing. But Scripture tells you to beware. He's your adversary, he's out to get you. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Satan's strategies are to use the flesh the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life to trip us up. Most of us, thankfully, will never see Satan. That's a good thing. But keep in mind, if you did, he's probably going to come at you like an angel of light, because that's what Scripture says. So he's not going to look very evil. He's going to look, he'll probably try to make himself look like Jesus. But he will come after us using the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And we are to be alert and on guard against these. And that's going to be different for each one of us, what those look like. Our own temptations, the things we can easily pull astray or pulled into that, that's sinful. We must be watchful and alert against the attacks of Satan. We must also You must also be watchful and alert against temptation. These things flow closely together they're not exactly the same, but they do go together. You must be watchful and alert against temptation. Jesus commanded his di- disciples in Matthew twenty-six forty-one to keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. He said, he told them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You're weak. You're spiritually weak. And if you're not on guard against temptation, you will fall. That's true of you teenagers. Right, Young men and women who are in the prime of your physical life, so to speak, you have an adversary out there, the devil, and your greatest enemy is your own self, the temptation within your heart. You must be on guard against it you You cannot handle it. Scripture says, "Take heed um, those who think they stand lest they fall. John MacArthur explains that if we are not watching and seeking the Lord's help and prayer, we often will not even notice temptation when it comes. When our spiritual eyes are shut or sleepy, we can fall more easily into sin. That That is true. You must be alert and watchful against temptation. Thirdly, you must be watchful and alert to obey the Lord's commands. You must be watchful and alert to obey the Lord's commands. You cannot let yourself become apathetic Or indifferent to your walk with Christ. You know it's so easy to come to church. And listen to a message. And drone on. And maybe you get sleepy headed. And not even care about it. And you just go home. And you know it's another week. And life goes on. You go back to school. You go back to work. No difference is made. But you can't do that. If you do that you're going to fall into sin. The Lord calls his disciples to obey. You know, we read accounts like Jeremiah where the, where the prophets would declare the word and the people just ignore it or, or actually just throw their, their proverbial fist up in God's face and we think, oh, how foolish. But how many of you have done the same thing? Walk out of here, letting the message of God go in one ear and out the other, not allowing to have residence, not allowing it not to, to, take, to take root in your life, not seeking to be a doer of the word. You must, as a follower of Christ, be alert and watchful to obey the Lord's commands. Think about what Jesus' message is to the church at Sardis from Revelation 3. I'll just read that to you. Revelation 3, the first three verses. Jesus says this, To a church, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Sounds like a lot of churches today. They have a name that they're alive but they're dead. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are, were about to die for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. That is, as obey it. Repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And he comes not as a savior, but as judge. That church is dead. Many people today who are living a careless Christian life who think that they're Christians who claim to be Christians are going to find themselves on the judgment side of the Lord's coming. But it doesn't have to be that way. Believers, it must not be that way. If we are God's children, His sons and daughters, so we must be watchful and alert to obey the Lord's commands. Fourthly, we must be watchful and alert Against false teachers. These are dangerous times. Not only do we have churches that are calling themselves churches. Who are going against the word of God. We have Christians who are calling themselves. Or people calling themselves Christians. Who are living lives completely contrary to the word of God. And then you've got all the false teachers. And of course they don't come with a little flag that says caution. I'm a false teacher. You know like your coffee comes with a little sign that says caution hot. Right? False teachers don't come with a warning label. Right? They come; they look like truth. You you, you hear them on on uh, you know on TV or the televangelist, or you hear them see them on Facebook. So they're all over the place. And keep in mind, false teachers aren't all wrong. Right? They're going to say enough truth where you're like, "Oh, I learned something from him. I, I guess I can listen to him," and they blow you in. And then pretty soon, there's subtle changes that happen. Be cautious. Be wary. Several of you have asked me about the the uh, the Chosen series, the new, um, kind of like the third, third season of that, and asked me about that. I have more than one. Right? I haven't watched it, but I've read reviews on it. And you just have to be careful. I'm not saying don't watch it. It's entertaining. It's well done. But you have to be careful. Because there's things slipping in from the Book of Mormon into what Jesus says. It's there. So watch it. I'm just saying, watch it and be watchful. There you go. Watch, watchful. Guard. Guard what you're letting into your mind. Because Satan seeks very subtle ways to pull God's people away. If you're truly saved, he can't unsave you. But He can cause you to live such an abysmal um, Christian life that you're of no usefulness to the kingdom of God. Your life's a mess. God doesn't want you to live that way. He commands you to live watchfully and alert. There are people we need to shut off, stop following, stop listening to, stop reading their books. Because they are false teachers. And they're, they abound. I won't even give a list of names. It would be too long. I'd be here all day. But I will say that there's more and more and more. And some of the people that I used to think were faithful seem to be abandoning the faith. And they're not as trustworthy as they were before. So it's something to be on guard against. And um, so be watchful. Fifthly, you must be watchful and alert. This is is a good thing for the Lord's return. Be watchful and alert for the Lord's return. Our Lord Jesus commanded his disciples to do this very thing in Matthew 24. In verse 42, he says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. That's our, that's our season of life right now. The church, I use that in a broad sense, is asleep. The church doesn't think that the Lord is coming anytime soon. So, and the Lord uses this, this illustration of a homeowner. You know, if you knew what hour of the night someone was going to break into your house to steal something, you would stay awake. No matter how tired you were, you would stay awake right, to protect your property, protect your family, more importantly. That's the alertness, spiritual alertness that Jesus is calling us to with his return. Because if you think he's coming today, you kind of live differently, don't you? You stand guard against sin a little more sharply. You resist Satan, and it causes you to be a little more active spiritually in applying his word to your own life. But when you think his return is a long ways away, you begin to get lethargic. There's many illustrations of this in Scripture where, where the Lord says the, the the slaves and the servants just, you know, they get, they get lazy and they don't, they don't do what they're supposed to do because the master is away. Well, obviously, we know that our, our master sees everything. Right? we're never not with him but our lord is returning and that should cause us to 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 live for today as if he's coming today helps guard against sin and against and for those that are here today and you don't know where you are spiritually you, th- you think you might be a christian but you're not sure or perhaps you just don't know at all know this that when the Lord returns, he returns as a loving Savior to all those who have called upon his name. He's not going to turn anyone away. If if you recognize that you're a sinner before God and that if you die today, you're going to be judged by him in eternity. If you recognize that, also recognize that Jesus is the Savior who forgives sins and flee to him for safety. Because if you do not, then when the Lord Jesus comes, he will come as your judge and the hour will be too late. Now, procrastination is a tool of Satan. You think about turning to Christ another day. And Spurgeon said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the day of salvation. We must be watchful. You must be watchful. and And think about, think about what this means. Even children, here today, hey, listen to your parents. There are many adults in this world who seek to turn you against your parents. Stay alert. Stay awake. Know who to listen to, who to trust. There, there are many people today who are, who are calling you to rebel against God's design for your sexuality. Our world is telling little girls that they can become boys. And boys that they could tell girls. That's absolutely nonsense. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Young men and women. You encounter many adversaries in your schools. High school, middle school, colleges. Don't attend these universities ambivalent spiritually. Don't attend them like like nothing's going on at the university. That university, while it can have some benefits, has also is also led by many professors and institutional leaders who hate God, and they are pursuing a, an agenda to to promote hating God. So do not walk into that classroom thinking your professor is neutral. He or she is not. Your institution is not neutral. I'm not saying don't go there. I'm saying, go there, alert, watchful, on guard. Think about where you work. Think if you work for a larger company, it's changing, isn't it? Things they used to not talk about, they're talking about. They're forcing you to take diversity training. They are wanting you to use pronouns of a different sort that we've never used before. Be on guard. Be on alert. Know what God wants you to do in those situations. Don't wait until that happens to decide, what do I do? How do I respond? Do I call this pretend woman? By her preferred gender? Do I I affirm that? Can I affirm that? Don't wait until you're there before you know what's happened. Be alert. And, And just think about Even some of those who are older in this in this congregation, even in your retirement, God wants you to be alert. It's not just time to coast; it's time to grow, and and like for the older generation to help the younger generation to learn to train. So be alert, be watchful. That's that's the first mandate that that. You must embrace as a follower of Christ, as a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ, so that you're progressively growing, that you're edifying the saints, and that you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around you. They're not going to want to hear it. Most people aren't going to thank you for sharing the gospel with them. Do it anyway. Be watchful. Secondly, you must stand firm in the faith. That's Paul's next command. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith so that you're growing, that you're edifying others, and that you're proclaiming Christ. Paul's command here to stand, to stand is used metaphorically uh, to talk about remaining firm, standing firm, about persevering in the face of opposition. Synonyms, close synonyms are to be steadfast, to be immovable. The opposite of stand in this sense is to be tossed here or there, be tossed here or there. We're not to be tossed here or there. It's a, again a present act of command. We are to stand continually, and, and Paul provides the arena in which we're to stand. He says, "In the faith, stand in the faith." The, the faith in this in this passage, Paul is not talking about the faith of trust. That is, trusting trusting the Lord for salvation. Right? That's a different aspect of faith. Here he says. The faith, stand in the faith. He is talking about the faith, the truth that God delivered to us. God's truth. This is the arena that that God has called us to stand in. Paul is commanding that you stand in the faith, which means standing in the truth that God has given you in his word. As, as Paul says in Ephesians four fourteen, he says, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the by craftiness and deceitful scheming, you know, churches today, entire churches today, are deconstructing their theology. It's bad. It's not good, because God's word calls us to stand firm in the faith. Oh, there are debatable passages in Scripture which we can wrestle with, but a large percentage of the Scripture and our theology. It's fixed. It's firm. It's not changing, and change would be would be bad. It would violate this principle. We are to stand strong in the faith. Now, unless you've done some sailing on on the ocean or lived by the sea, you probably will only appreciate lighthouses from in a picture or in from a distance. You don't really re- understand the benefit of a lighthouse. A lighthouse shines a light so that sailors can safely navigate either around shoals or find home. Shoals would be those shallow areas where the ships would easily get shipwrecked and get sunk and sailors would die. Some of the most impressive lighthouses are simply, they look just like lighthouses. They're like, they're like embedded in a rock that you can barely see any part of the little little island. You could barely call it an island. And you have this massive lighthouse that juts out of the ocean. To shine light and in a storm, sometimes the waves get near the top and you can't even see the base of the lighthouse. I don't know if you've seen any of those photos like that. That's the kind of standing fast that God calls you to do on the Word of God. The Word of God is like a rock that you embed your life into. And when your life is embedded into it, no matter the storms of life, right? You're immovable, no matter what happens, like we read in psalm forty six though the mountains fall into the sea you're not you're not shattered, you're not afraid because you know the Lord your God is with you, He upholds you so lighthouse is a place of refuge for the for the whoever's operating the lighthouse, which they don't do that anymore, it's all automated, but they used to. people used to live in places like that just to save. Sailors, just to make sure men and women made it home to their families. You're a lighthouse. You are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Let's change the analogy a little bit. Your standing fast isn't just about your own life. Your standing fast means that you're a lighthouse to those around you who are in the crashing sea, who are being tossed here or there. You can help other Christians to hold steadfast when they're tossed here or there. But there's also unbelievers that are very concerned about our world right now. You know, if I didn't believe in Christ and if I didn't know that God was completely sovereign, I'd be a very anxious person today. Never have we been closer on the brink of nuclear war. Our whole supply chains, which we all depend upon because we don't grow our own crops, are in tatters. We have less than a month's supply of diesel left, which runs our trains, our trucks, generators, just you name it. And our leaders are totally inept at knowing what to do. That's anxious causing on a human level. But because we know that our God is in control, we're like that lighthouse. We're just going to keep on being believers. We're going to keep on living for God. We are not going to panic. Are we concerned? Do we hate it? Yes. Do we hate the way our culture's changing and rallying against God and, and really against the good of humanity? Absolutely. But it doesn't change what we're called to do as believers. God wants us to reform the culture to the extent that we can by living steadfast, by standing firm. That's what he calls us to do. This is a popular theme or a, a recurrent theme in Scripture. Galatians 5 1. Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject in the yoke of slavery. Context is they were trying to, uh, others, false teachers, and, and uh, uh, those that were pulling people back into Judaism, wanting them to live a certain way. And Paul said, No. Don't be subject to this. Stand firm in the gospel. Philippians 4 1. Therefore, my brothers, Loved and longed for my joy and my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. And then Ephesians 6 tells us how. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to uh, resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. And then Peter, Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5.12 says, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the word of God. Stand firm on the word of God. Don't discount it like the Israelites did Jeremiah's warnings. And many in, in Martin Luther's own day discounted what he said. They called him a foolish monk discounted it. Don't do that. Stand firm on the word of God. Stand firm is a second mandate you must embrace to be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ, again to be growing in your own life, to be edifying others and to be a witness to the world. Thirdly, you must act like men. You must act like men so that you're growing, edifying others and proclaiming Christ. Paul commands that you Act like men. What in the world is he talking about? Act like men. I mean, the letter is to the church. This isn't a letter to leadership. This isn't a letter just to men. This is a letter to the church. Men and women. Leaders and non-leaders. I could actually see this being, and I'm surprised it's not already, the favorite twisted verse of a so-called ch- transgender man. That's the person who's born biologically a woman, but thinks she's a man, right? So I haven't heard it quoted in that way yet, but it would be totally wrong. It's completely slaughtering the meaning of the command. God is certainly not, com- not commanding females to be males. That's not what he's, That's going on here. So what does act like men mean? Well, act like men is a translation of a single Greek verb that's only used once in the New Testament. But the word is used frequently in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So at some point in in New Testament history, or in history, the Jews were not able to read Hebrew anymore. They had lost the language. And so they needed the Old Testament scriptures in their own language, so they translated them into Greek. So it helps us sometimes to understand Greek words when they used a, a Greek word in the Old Testament. And when they use this particular word in the Septuagint, it talks about exhibiting courage in the face of danger. Exhibiting courage in the face of danger. And and so that's why some Bible translators actually use the word courage. For example, the New King James Version uses be brave. And the New National Version says be courageous. And and those, those are fair translations. But many trustworthy translations not saying the others are untrustworthy, but just say many trustworthy translations like the Legacy Standard Bible, the, the NASB 95, the English Standard Version, they keep the wording, act like men. Act like a man. Why do they do this? If the word just simply means courageous, why are some translations sticking with the exact wording of, or not the exact wording, but the translation of, of the word in Greek, which is act like a man? play the man, to translate it literally. The reason they retain the phrase act like men is that they rightly understand it as a word picture that's doing two things at the same time, which is impossible to translate if you if you go away from the idiom that's being used there. It, there it's, a, it's a word play. Um, one commentator noted this. He says the force of, of the command to be a man has two semantic Opposition. Semantic is a word that relates to how words relate to one another. The ideas behind them. He says there are two oppositions going on here with this word. Not one. So it does not simply pose a contrast with the supposedly feminine qualities. I'm continuing to quote here. It also stands in contrast with childish ways. Hence the Greek suggests both maturity and courage. You could say, show mature courage, unquote. So understand what Paul's going on. Paul is is using the command to act like men to, to get us to intermix two reactions or two actions in our lives at the same time. Paul uses the stereotype of men being brave to call you to be brave. Yes, women are called to be brave too. And women often are brave. That's not Paul's point. He's using the stereotype of men being brave to call believers to be brave. And yes, not all men are brave. It's a stereotype. Stereotypes mean they're just that. They're not always true, but they're generally true. So God is calling you to be brave. But then there's also this comparison going on. He's calling you to be mature, not to be childish. Childish. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He goes, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I acted like a child. I did childish things. And it was okay. But now I've matured. I've become a man. And I need to do manly things. Meaning mature things. Far too many Christians today are living childish lives. Even as older people. That's nonsense. That's violating what scripture tells us to do. Now, now keep in mind that that how how scripture uses stereotypes when Paul wants to encourage uh, leaders to be gentle, he uses the analogy, not of a man, but what a nursing mother. So there he's calling leaders in particular to be like gentle, like a nursing mother. So Paul's use of this term, act like men, don't get women, don't get offended. It's it's like. The whole issue of gender has has become taken too much of a of a hot spot in the church today. All he's simply is he's calling you, men and women, to show courage, and to be mature. You know that's what it takes to face a battle, on the brink of war. I don't know if you've ever been to Gettysburg, stood on the battlefield and thought it was, what it must have been like to be there. I can't fathom that. Standing there, waiting for somebody to shoot me—that took bravery. That also took maturity. Not everybody was that way. Some fled. But spiritually, that's what the Lord calls us to do—to be mature, to be to be brave. Uh, there's there's one commentator that that provided a um, an explanation this way. He says. To, to act like a man means to faithfully carry out one's responsibilities, even in the face of extreme danger or frightening circumstances. And, and he suggests that the best way for us to understand that is is to put it kind of in our vernacular and say, you know, you can imagine yourself being on a on a high diving board, one of those uh, platform uh, boards above an Olympic swimming pool. You've waited in line to to jump, and you get up there to the edge you look down and it's a long ways down. And you you do what? You hesitate. You start thinking about it. Do I really want to do this? And all the while the people behind you are saying the line is backing up and they finally get impatient. They say, come on man, jump! And so you jump. You didn't want to. But you also didn't want to look like a limp to the people behind you. That's that's it's an imperfect illustration, but that's kind of what's going on here. Paul's saying to you believers, be mature, be brave. And living for Christ today it takes that. Someday we're gonna live in a nice, pleasant environment environment, government ruled by a perfect king. There'll be no war, no sin, nothing to fight, not even your own sin. But that's not today. We live in a spiritual battlefield. Scripture uses that analogy many times. You are called to war. And if you go to war without being brave, without being mature, you're going to get hurt. That's true in the physical sense, but it's also true in the spiritual sense. To be prepared. And this is a call for all ages. If you're a believer, young or old, you're called to courage. You are called to maturity. You know, when our our country has been attacked on a number of occasions, our country doesn't call out the Girl Scouts. Nothing wrong with Girl Scouts. I'm not demeaning them. They are doing exactly what what they did, or at least used to. There's lots of things I wouldn't endorse, but perhaps not the best analogy. But... We don't call right, children to defend our country, do we? In the past, we've called our most abled men. Right? Not to say women, I'm using the stereotype. Right? Not to say women haven't contributed, they have. But you called your most abled, your strongest, most fittest, your bravest people to come to the defense. Because many of them aren't coming home to defend our land. Now, spiritually speaking, that's not the case. But but understand, it's a, it's an analogy. That's the seriousness of which we got to take our, our living out for our lives for the glory of God. Don't don't live this life carelessly, like you're on a golf course. You're on a battlefield spiritually. So act like men. That's the third mandate you must embrace. The fourth mandate is this: be strong. And it really goes with with these. All these these commands flow together; they're related to one another. Paul commands you to be strong, and this flows from this. What we said about being a man and and standing firm and being alert. Strength in battle is required. You know, in ages past, many of the battles were hand to hand combat. And when we were in Poland. We got to see some of the the castles of the Teutonic Knights. And they even had some of the swords of the Teutonic Knights there, and you would be simply amazed at how heavy a battle sword is. They challenge people just to hold it straight out for five minutes. It's heavy. Imagine swinging that thing around in battle. It takes strength. It's not not for whims. Again, that's just an analogy spiritually. How, how are we to be strong? How are we to be strong spiritually? Well, the Lord calls us to depend upon him. The way that the way that Paul writes this, it's not as if the strength depends upon you. It's not. All the other verbs are active right, in this list, except this one. This one's a passive verb. That's important. But it's saying, be strong, but it doesn't come from you. You're going to have to depend upon God for that strength. You're looking to Him. This is not internal strength. This is strength in the Lord. You just can't muster up strength. You can't just talk to your muscles and say, you know, be strong. Wouldn't it kind of be nice if it worked that way? But it doesn't. Even with our physical bodies, you can't make your, your muscles strong. Now, you can do something that then has an effect of making your muscles strong. You can go to the gym and you can lift weights. And you can increasingly lift greater weight. Why? Because your muscles are getting stronger. Right? You are putting uh, a discipline into place that then causes your muscles to grow stronger. Well, the same thing happens spiritually. If you use the disciplines of grace, prayer, study of God's word, living for Christ, witnessing to others, building up the saints, those are spiritual muscles. That when they are used they get stronger. Do you know why witnessing is so hard for many of us? You just don't do it enough. Your evangelism muscles are weak. And so when you go to use them, they feel apathy. they are like, ah, oh, I can't do that. Right? But you've got to do it. And as you do it, right, recognize that that person's salvation isn't up to you. Your job isn't to save them. Your job is to proclaim Christ to them. You're the messenger pray for the Holy Spirit to use that message to draw them to saving faith. You can't make yourself strong, but you can submit to, to God and depend upon His graces to make you strong. The Lord calls you to do that hard work. Be strong. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy two one. he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And again, this is everybody. This isn't just those in the prime of life. This is those towards the end of life. And those are just starting out in life. Right? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Paul adds this, this fifth mandate to all the other things he said. The fifth mandate is this, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. The four commands up to this point are all military terms. Right? So I've tried to take that, that address. This is Christian, a Christian call to arms. This is what reforms nations or just uh, allows us to be a faithful witness to nations who refuse to listen. This is the spirit of the reformers. Something they didn't do so well, at least the reformers at times, is this command in verse 14. Let everything you do be done in love. You see, the, the Christian warfare isn't one where we just, we just act brash and it's all, it's all warfare. This is spiritual warfare. So we have to do everything we've done. Everything is commanded in love. So we're alert in love. We stand firm in love. We act like men in love. We're strong in love. Everything. Love is to dominate everything we do that is the battlefield of which we're in. Uh, Paul, Paul's commands, uh, Warren Wiersbe notes that Paul's commands in verse 13 sound like military orders, suggesting that the church is an army and ought to act like one. Act like adults, he exhorts them. How we need that exhortation today. Too often the church does not have the discipline and maturity of an army. The Corinthians were acting like babies. It was time they grew up and acted like adults. Unquote. These militaristic terms should not be taken too far. That's why Paul says, do everything in love. In love for God, in love for one another, and even in love to the world who hates you and hates God. You're called to love your enemies. That doesn't mean accepting them as they are. It means being a lighthouse, standing firm, being alert, acting like a man, being strong. Let me give you an illustration of this from just this week. You might have seen the article. Last week, Nick Priole, a, a 19-year-old Christian, went out on the campus of the University of Wisconsin to preach the gospel to protesters. They were there to protest Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? So they were there to protest that, and Nick was there to witness, be a witness of Christ to them. He was there to preach the gospel to them. And Nick was there, not as a counter protest, but again, as a, as an evangelist. Let me explain, I'm going to explain his own motives by just reading what he, uh, relayed in an article that I wrote, that I read. He says, if I saw someone walking off a cliff, how much more would I, would I have, so how much would I have, how much would I have to hate them to see them walking off a cliff and not tell them that there's a way out? These people, meaning the protesters, are just like me before Jesus, sinners who love their sin and hate God. But praise God, He gives sinners the greatest joy, peace, and pleasure when He saves their soul from destruction. And now, because God saved me, I have so much joy. I want to go tell everyone about this life changing good news that you can be reconciled to your Creator by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, who bore the punishment we deserve for our sins in our place. By dying on a cross, it's the most loving message I could tell anyone, unquote. What a bold witness. Again, he wasn't there to antagonize him. He was there to preach Christ. But it did antagonize. If you read the story, you know, that Nick set his Bible down at one point, And the story noted that it was a legacy standard Bible. His personal study Bible. He set that down for a moment as the protesters were shouting and screaming at him and trying to rile him up. They picked up that Bible and began tearing the pages out. Nick didn't even know it until he saw the pages blowing in the wind. Later, they saw a viral video of protesters actually eating the pages of Scripture. Kind of ironic, given what Scripture says about that. Hopefully that person comes to faith in Christ and, will have a very uh, graphic testimony to tell about that. But how did Nick respond? He didn't get bitter. He didn't get upset. He's down 100 bucks for a Bible, one he probably made notes in. Uh, protesters also stole about $1,000 worth of video equipment. But he wasn't upset about it. And again, I'll quote him. While well, I lost $100 in a Bible that meant so much to me, It's just a material object. Unlike in many other countries, I can always buy another one. And I know that God's word will go out. And as the Lord says, it will not return void. Later in the evening, I saw many students walking around with pages in their hands, whether reading or mocking. I know that seeds were planted. And I pray that God waters those seeds, leaving souls and changing lives for the better. Oh, what a wonderful testimony. Right? knowing that God will accomplish the purpose. He wasn't rattled. Probably was rattled some, but he didn't respond in a rattled way to the protesters. That's that illustration of just standing firm, being brave, being mature. Hey, being alert. You know, not to fall into the trap of like responding in anger, doing it in love. What a wonderful, wonderful illustration that is. He's 19 years old. High schoolers, those who are young in college. Do that, please. Don't don't think that your Christianity can wait until you mature, mature now. Do it now if you're a believer in Christ. If you need to blaze the trail where you're at. We'll be with you and we will pray for you. God has called each one of us, beloved God has called. God has called us to be soldiers of Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, you are called to arms. You are called to battle. You are called to reform. Your own heart, your church, and the world as the Lord gives you those opportunities. It requires you to be alert, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, to be strong, and to do all of this in love. The love of Christ, so that you're growing progressively, that you are that you are edifying the saints, and that you are a bold witness to a lost and decaying world. We don't know the future, but we know the one who does. We don't know whether the Lord will reform our culture, whether He will He will spare us and give us more time. People turn to Christ. The Lord is always forgiving we don't know whether the Lord wants to use us in a witness way where that testimony goes out, and people don't respond. Don't grow weary in doing what is right, if that's the case. Don't be intimidated when they mock you, when they hate you, when they tear your Bible up. Just stand firm, be mature, be strong, be courageous. Be the reformer God has called you to be in the arena that he has placed you Let's pray. Our Lord, you have given us marching orders and we need your help to carry them out. Please strengthen us. Strengthen us, Lord God, to do what you want us to do. Give us resolve. Just help us to depend upon your spirit to obey these words, to put them into practice and to encourage one another to do so. but help us to be faithful witnesses that are commended, really not because of what we did, but simply putting your instructions into practice in your strength and power, you get all the glory. Do this through us, Lord, for your good, uh, for our good and for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.